This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today loves a good list, so let's start with a list of his credits. He's a maker, a designer, a television host, and a producer. He co-hosted Mythbusters for 14 years on the Discovery Channel, and he hosted Mythbusters Jr. His website, Tested.com, is home to the cool stuff he makes and the stories behind them. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. Coming up is my creative conversation with the man, the myth, the maker, Adam Savage. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Can I borrow that and send that out? Sure. Listen, you earned it. I, you have so much more that can be said. Your book, new book, Every Tool's a Hammer, is a fantastic Bible for makers in every oh, way. I'm so glad to hear that. At my autograph signings at cons, people still regularly bring it up to be signed. Uh, we released it in 2019. I'm delighted it still has some resonance and some utility. Well, let me tell you this. I know that you won't tell people how good it is because that would sound obnoxious, right? It'd be humble bragging. But you are a Sherpa guide for makers that are in search of inspiration and you shine a light on on following through and completing projects. I mean, it would interestingly, the chapters on lists and deadlines are critical to success in anything you do. I want to point out that I, I definitely didn't write a how-to book. And I'd like to just point out that like my YouTube channel tested is not necessarily a how-to channel, more of like a what happened channel. So, I mean, I did try and couch the advice and the experiences I'd had when I wrote about them in the book in terms that this was my experience and these were the ways in which it resonated with me. And I think that if there's one thing I really try and bring, it's just an honesty about my experience. So, you know, when I'm talking about shop practice, I'm not just talking about safety, but I'm also talking about shame and imposter syndrome, which also show up in the shop. And that we must be talking about this if we're going to actually progress in our skill bases, because when we're trying to be excellent at anything, our biggest obstacle is always going to be ourselves. That is correct. And and it's interesting because I've seen on this podcast time and time again, issues of fraud, even people who have done movie after movie, they look at a blank page and it's more than an act of courage. They're afraid somebody's going to catch them. And it's a, a very, very common situation in creatives that they face a new thing and they go, well, I kind of have the skill set for this, but what if they find out I can't direct? Or what if they find out I've never written a screenplay? Yeah. If I'm from a school, the pie's plenty big enough for everybody, and it does take a certain amount of self-confidence and moxie and stick to just to take any of those jobs at all. And, mm-hmm. and once you do, it doesn't necessarily make, make you that mean the next movie you make is going to be <laughs> excellent because... It's just a gamble. Every part of it's a gamble. The story, yeah. the execution, the editing. And it's a miracle we have great movies with as many hands that touch it. Indeed. Indeed. I totally agree. It is such a wonderful sort of lottery when something beautiful comes out. But you are a movie guy, at least from the book, I can tell. Yeah. You grew up on movies. You love movies. What is it about that form of storytelling? I'm a later generation of the 20th century, but I grew up in such a golden age for movies where Star Wars came out when I was 10 years old. And it, by 1980, the special effects revolution that Star Wars brought into being, the first four or five years of the 80s yielded some of the great movies ever made, ever conceived. Still, that was the the water I grew up swimming in, watching movies like The Thing and Alien and Aliens and The Abyss. I mean, all of these films sort of shaped the way I think about technology, the way I think about politics. The early 80s were an amazing time to be a teenager and to love going to the movies. You basically would go there for an escape from your parents and an activity out. And I mean, we would go to the mall every Friday night or Saturday night for a movie just to be doing something. But you mentioned something, standing online. What's funny about culture right now is culture is online, right? Uh, So much of our culture is online and online is such a key part of culture. But back then in the 80s, the culture was 
on the movie line. I remember going to see when big movies came out in New York City, you would go to be there for the first show on the first day. And you would always, no matter how long the line was, someone would look down at it and go, yeah, it's not as big as the line for Jedi. <laughs> right. Waiting online was how you met the other nut jobs who loved film as much as you did. Yeah, that's funny. I had a, a an experience where a friend wanted to take us all to Rocky Horror Picture Show where people waited online and they were wearing costumes. Now, I didn't know anything about it when my friend said, hey, we all got to dress up. We dressed up in Halloween costumes, not even relevant to it, mummies and army men and stuff, and we met him there because he said you have to dress up for the movie. So everyone goes, what are you supposed to be? It's like, I'm an army man, right? And so we look like morons in that line where everybody was dressed up like the characters. But he also was kind of pimping us around because he had a he had us bring up a, a brown sack full of items. You know, you're supposed to bring a yeah, yeah. piece of toast so that when they say toast, you hold up the bread. Well, he had us bring a balled up roll of white socks and different things. And I don't know that everything actually had to do with the movie. He would just say, all right, throw your socks. And we'd throw them. And everyone who was in the culture was like, what are you guys doing? But he had the greatest time teeing us up online and then in the theater. And it was a great Thing to be a part of. Well, it's funny that you bring up Rocky Horror. I don't know if you know my history with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, please share. One of my very, very first adult jobs in Manhattan in late 1985 was I got hired as a projectionist at the 8th Street Playhouse on 8th and 6th Avenue, where the Rocky Horror Picture Show fad <laughs> began. The scene in Rocky Horror when they go in the movie Fame that's shot in the 8th Street Playhouse and the MC of events, Sal Piro, was running that show back when I was projecting and I projected that for a year and a half, every Friday and Saturday night. That early fandom of the Rocky Horror Picture, the entire thing, all the stuff around it, the dressing up, the camaraderie, it's like an early con, you know, it was an early recognition of my people working there at 18. That's interesting because I was going to ask, you mentioned cosplay throughout your book, making costumes and being characters was a big part of your world. And I wonder where that began. Is that a little bit where it took off in terms of enthusiasm? Yes. Like any kid, I crave transformation and I loved putting on helmets and costumes and armor and all sorts of stuff like that. My parents were not necessarily fancy, but they liked good clothes. So I grew up liking good clothes, <laughs> which are also a form of costume. But there was something that happened at watching the scene at Rocky Horror where I got to see young queer kids engaging with a public version of their queerness for the first time. And I got to see how that was really landing on their souls and seeing how they were uh, blooming in that environment. It really was the first experience I had of how literally transformative that could be. Yeah, and transformation is so important in storytelling and in life, adopting change and moving forward. You seem like a lifetime learner in everything that I see in terms of what your projects are. And you mentioned in your book that curiosity was a currency that allowed you to explore secret thrills. Mm -hmm. Describe what that means, secret thrills, because I know it's something that you recommend to the reader that they take stake in that. I'd like to go back and talk about that curiosity as a currency because I was encouraged to be curious. I was encouraged to know that my questions had validity when I wanted to chase them down a rabbit hole. And there are countless examples of parents like listening to their kid get a guitar lesson and yelling, you're out of tune from the next room. <laughs> oh, parents way to keep your kid from ever playing the guitar again. That freedom was so important because being able to ask a question, here's the thing that I learned on Mythbusters in a really tangible way. I was constantly engaging with material I had no prior familiarity with. I'd be reading everything I could on Wikipedia, then finding an expert and kind of comparing what I thought I understood with the expert, calling a different expert, comparing what, and it, it was a lot of back and forth with this sort of soup of information until there's a certain point at which some little tag ticks in my brain and says, wait a minute, what about this part? And then all of a sudden I have a point of view on the gestalt of what I'm trying to understand. And the moment I have a point of view, that's the secret thrill. That's the endorphin rush because time and time again on the show, I realize like, oh, that's where I have something to contribute to the storytelling about this complicated thing. 
Yeah, and it is interesting because you, you it got to be on the show, which I really liked, that it kind of became the SWAT team of assignments for things. And I mean, it was intriguing. The title alone, Mythbusters, <laughs> tells you everything. Okay, we're going to go explore something and we're going to go yeah. see if it's true or not. That to me is a great invitation to a series, which is what's going to be this week? What's going to be tomorrow? Mythbusters is such a product of the early aughts. Yes. This is back when a small TV production company, Beyond Productions, wants to make a couple of pilots. They find two guys with a shop. They send out five crew members. That's it. We shot the first three pilots of Mythbusters in six weeks flat with a crew of seven, including Jamie and I. No one makes television that lightweight anymore. There's an aspect of that that was really... I mean, I know it was key and intrinsic to Mythbusters' success because in the end, when the show immediately blew up, it blew up based on a format that was just me and Jamie and then Cary Grant and Tori and everybody else following their noses towards what they were curious about. People ask, what was it about the narratives that we built? And I submit that they were honest narratives. You know, so much reality television is totally scripted from start to finish. And there were some attempts to like create more drama between Dr Jamie and I, but as soon as we were successful and we realized neither of us was the enemy, we simply collaborated. And occasionally there was friction and we made that part of the narrative, but we never took it personally. Now, I think that pure authentic approach felt like we were in the shop and we were part of the team solving the problem and sometimes hopeful that it would succeed and other times, oh, I can't wait till this thing blows up. Current reality television, the producers call the place and say, we're going to make your employees fight each other and we're going to make that person get a tattoo even though the boss says it's against the rule. It's brutal. It's no fun to watch and they do it in exchange for exposure to their museum or their tattoo shop. Well, and also the network is terrified. The network is always perennially terrified. It doesn't matter what the network is. It doesn't matter what the show is. They want to know what is the most unique thing about this current episode that we can go sell. Beyond Productions was the production company through all of Mythbusters. And to their great credit, Beyond is out of Sydney, Australia. They protected the Mythbusters crew so well from the vagaries of what the network thought they wanted. We kept on getting notes like, where is the complication going to be in this third act piece? And I'd be like, look, we're going to screw something up and that will add five minutes to our cut. And if we don't screw up, I'll put on a costume and we'll get some color that way, okay? <laughs> right. Well, I remember writing for NBC. I had a short-lived series that didn't make the air. We made six episodes and we were kind of working in our lifeboat on our own with our crew and stuff. But we were it was very Midwestern flavor and the NBC was terrified of the Midwest. Everything they had was New York-based Seinfeld, Friends, everything. And this was like hee-haw to them. So if we had a reference to corn, they would censor it. They'd go, please rewrite this line. And that was when I said to all the writers on my staff, put references to corn in the first draft of everything you can. Because yeah. <laughs> that seems to be what they're paying attention to. And so dad had a corn on his thing. Somebody ate a corn dog. And they would give a note. And i go, all right, cut it. But now they didn't notice we're making fun of Kleenex, which is a product name right we used to do something like that in special effects sometimes you had art directors who had serious imposter complex and when they did they would come in and they'd always look for something to be like that's wrong fix that and when you had an art director who kind of arbitrarily did that you learned to not give him or her a perfect model because if you did they'd be like oh no it's not good can you make the whole thing funnier or some note that was impossible so what you did was you took some big detail of it you made it purple and then they'd walk in and they'd be like why is that purple and you're like all right we'll change that and then they would ignore all the other issues the other thing we used to do and i guess this is very juvenile you know when you're working on a show there and it's the network's money sometimes you have a fantasy this week we wanted to have a pinball on the set so we wrote a b storyline where Somebody was trying to figure out the randomness of the pinball. And the network goes, what, what, we don't want to learn about pinball. Like, we're cutting that. They cut the storyline, even though now we have the pinball machine because it's already on the set. So we're looking at each other with like two days to go. Somebody said, well, we got to fill this storyline. What if we get a remote control blimp that we fly around? <laughs> it's just like little kids. But it is the way it becomes fun because you're kind of exploring your own sense of play that you're then sharing with the audience. 
it's one of those things where if you didn't have that whimsy, uh, it wouldn't have the personality that, that I'm sure when you guys explored these, you were probably having notions where somebody would come in with a myth they heard and say, I've, I've always wanted to look into this. And more than that, a deep part of my sense of humor, which became such a key part of the show, was breaking the fourth wall and talking right to the camera. I, Jamie and I, actually, and all of us, all of the Mythbusters hosts come from the other side of the camera than, than the fancy side. And that informed all of the ways in which we thought about making narratives and also the way we executed them. And I love nothing more than thinking as the viewer and then speaking to that viewer right at the camera. And so many times Fan would be like, dudes, I would have this thought and then you would turn to the camera and tell me the thought that I was having. <laughs> well, I mean, I think people love that. In my early days of writing on Seinfeld, I remember Jerry saying, hey, listen, we're the audience. Let's just write to amuse ourselves because we're not going to be like whatever was on television at the time, Murphy Brown. We're not going to be like that because we don't watch that. Let's sink on our own ship. He said, be the captain of the ship, and if it goes down, you can be proud. If you board the network ship and it goes down, you'll forever regret it. To his credit, it turned out to pay off on, in many ways. That's the only way something actually lands is if it has an internally consistent honesty. I can't tell you how many times some of the script outlines I was working with would be like, and then there should be some complication. And, you know, a producer is always going to give you a terrible idea. I, I recently interviewed uh, Andrew Sean Greer, an author for a podcast called City Arts and Lectures. And he was had this wonderful reversal of the roles of a writer and an editor. Uh, and I think this applies to television production as well. He said, the editor is thought to be the doctor, but in fact, the editor's the patient and the writer is the doctor. And the editor says, this part doesn't work. My hand hurts. It must be hand cancer. And the author says, it could be a lot of other things. Let me see what I can do to fix this. Oh, interesting. And so I had a young professional sit down with me here at this table I'm at a few weeks ago and say, she said, uh, I am going to be building robots for a film. What do I need to know? And I said, okay, the first thing you need to know is that they will come to you with suggestions and questions that will make you question that they've ever paid attention to anything you've said in the entire pre-production process. You will wonder if they're literally not paying attention to anything you said. And your goal is not to be unhinged by how ridiculous and stupid their question is. It's to figure out what problem they're trying to solve by telling you a solution and then tell them a better solution. Okay, that is fantastic advice. I hope that people heard what you were saying because I've been in those meetings and I've pitched a half hour show where at the end, nothing I said, they said, well, what if you were a bullfighter in Spain instead? And you go, what in the <laughs> world are you talking about? But- it is interesting that the best piece of advice I ever got about pitching was to go in and listen. Listening seems counterintuitive when you're talking and you're selling, but they often tell you what's missing from their programming or what they have a Jones for. And it doesn't mean you have to do what they say. It just means you now have the lens to look into to say, oh, can I do this? Is this right for 10-year-old boys? Because that's what they need a show about. Yeah, no, it's still going to be that 19 out of your 20 pitches isn't going to land. But if you're listening, that 20th one is going to be this perfect match between you and the void in their schedule. After a certain amount of screenplay pitching, at that time I had a partner and, and I said, he was like, we got to get out of this business. I go, we have too much knowledge about it now. Like it would be ashamed if we didn't take what we know and write a good movie because they don't know what they're talking about. But what they're doing sometimes is they're pointing about a concern in a scene where they don't understand it. And that might be because we left out a piece of information that we've talked about in the room a million times, and we assume everybody knows that that's what the motive is. It's stepping back, I guess, and saying, why are they disconnecting about this part of the story? And then solve it yourself. A real writer's room, as you know, is, involves people going, okay, Everything works here except for this transition here. Why does this happen to that? And then they say, we don't know. Okay, let's figure this out. What are the other ways we could execute this? And you try like four and one of them makes sense. And then you start to get a bead on it. But an executive is never going to go, this doesn't work. They're going to go, what if there were three girls that show up and then blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I didn't even know where to go with this idiot. They're trying to solve a problem by giving me a solution. Okay, solutions are my department. What can I deliver? 
Yeah, yeah, you'll love this one. We had a play, a little play with two brothers and a dad in it. They referenced a girl that somebody had a crush on when they were younger or whatever. But when we came in, when the movie business optioned this play to make a movie, they wanted to know more about the girl. And we're like, what girl? What are you talking about? This is a really a relationship between two brothers who compete for their dad's affection. It's like, yeah, but which one ends up with the girl? We go, what girl are you talking about? So anyway, we realized that we needed to have a girl in the pitch. And they wanted a love triangle more than anything, which just really offended us. It couldn't be about them resolving their relationship. So we took their language, and this is something I would recommend to anybody who's listening, is sometimes you got to put it in the words that they can understand or what you would consider their language in their country. We pitched a love triangle, and we brought a girl in that one liked in high school and the other met much later after college. It was the same girl, and it was like it bothered us to no end. But then we came to the end, and they go, well, who gets the girl? We go, neither. The brothers get each other. Their part of the triangle is much more important. They go, oh, yeah, that's really clever. It's like, that's what we've been saying all along. But they kind of only could see it that way. And again, maybe because they took a, a quickie screenwriter course or read a book that said the word love triangle. But for some reason, they were stuck on that model. That executive who doesn't quite understand the plot until you've walked them through it in a specific way, they're not stupid. They're not trying to make your product worse. In fact, I submit that the issue they're bringing up is actually probably an important one to address. One of my favorite things in a story planning meeting on Mythbusters is I would always, I would often be the one standing up and doing the first breakdown of a, of a plot. And I'd say, well, the first experiment will be this because obviously this is the way everyone thinks. And then like my producer, Steve, would be like, mate, that's not the way I think at all. And Jamie would be like, actually, I have a totally different opinion than either of you two idiots. And at those moments, I was like, this is thrilling. Now we have three narratives to play with instead of one. Yeah, isn't that great? So the thing is being open, right? Being flexible. Yeah, we're not monoliths. We don't write something that's perfect. If someone has an issue with it, that's it's really often worth unpacking and finding out what's the resonance. How does that question inform where the narrative could go? Let me go back to something that I read early in your book. You said when you made stuff, the world made sense to you. And I think that's a real interesting thing from a creative standpoint and from a maker standpoint. And at what age did you understand not just that you were coloring or modeling, but you were suddenly a maker in the making. My earliest memories of making stuff include that feeling of transcendence. Again, to use that this metaphor a third time, that's the water I grew up in. My father was a painter and he painted most of the time. And by most of the time, I mean three or four hours a day, eight or nine months a year. He would work two or three months a year to get in some dough to pay the mortgage and stuff. But the rest of the time he painted and he didn't show much when I was a kid. So I grew up watching someone do something inexplicable that they did not talk about that was super important. And so that was a value infused in me. So when I like took an old briefcase of my dad's and I was like seven years old and I put lights in it and a button and it made it my mission impossible detonate briefcase. I mean, I remember running around my backyard with that thing, opening it up and having the same thrill as I do like today, like yesterday, someone sent me this gaffy stick from the man from, from uh, star Wars. And I'm like, I have the same pleasure of that as I did when I was seven years old with my mission impossible box. I totally get it. And I wonder, you talked about 10 years old and seeing the star Wars world unfold did your 10-year-old brain ever imagine that you'd be working at Industrial Light and Magic? What happened when you walked through those doors the first time? My first day at Industrial Light and Magic was uh, in mid-1998. I got wrong directions. I was told to take the wrong exit off of 101 North. I got a flat tire, and I was still 10 minutes early. I'm a contingency planner, and I'm a secret prepper. And going to ILM was like dying and going to heaven for me. Uh, I found a shop in 1998. They were late in the production of episode one. There were over 200 model makers working. So in a union shop, there's no infighting at all when, that, when, when it's a fat shop. There's no barriers to playing with stuff or learning new techniques. You, everyone protects their fiefdom less when everybody's working. What I found was an atmosphere of like-minded, open and sharing professionals who 
wanted to do what they did at the highest level they could and appreciated working in a place where that was a value. I mean, I remember coming up with solutions that were innovative. And if they were slightly innovative, like Lauren Peterson, one of the original island model makers and a good friend of mine would come by my desk and be like, oh, what are you doing there? And I'd explain it. He'd be like, oh, that's really neat. And then he'd tell you about some solution from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or <laughs> The Abyss. And then later that day, everyone would file past your desk asking for a little bit of a lowdown on the technique you built. That is so amazing. The approval you're looking for, which is not something you're seeking, when fireworks go off over your desk and everyone looks and goes, ooh, ah, that lights you up from the inside out. There's an A-list director making a movie right now, and he called me up about a month ago and said, I'm having trouble with this special effect and none of my teams have been able to solve it. Maybe you could help me. And I spent about 45 minutes on the phone just sort of talking through the issue, giving ideas of movies I thought that had stuff that was germane to the problem they were solving. And then I had this, oh, wait, how about this? And I gave them this idea. And they're trying it right now. They like had an effects crew build the rig that I described and drew, and they're trying it. The deep pleasure of all of my different skills, all of the different things that I'm fascinated with coming together to this friendship with the director who calls me to solve a problem. And I don't know whether I have something to contribute, but when I do, it is one of the great pleasures in life. And yeah, I do spend a lot of time thinking about 10 year old me and think, Hey kid, you know, it, it turns out pretty good. Yeah. Well, I would call that a specialty of being a creative consultant in a way where they call you as a fixer uh, or yeah. a, or a thinker, you know, I have always contended that great ideas are have great value. Whether or not you get paid for them or not, they sometimes can be the linchpin of why a story works or why a scene works or what makes a magic illusion fool the audience. The simplicity of that and the gentleness of the right turn of the key can make everybody else's thing turn on completely. I'm sure you've had this experience where you call somebody you trust and run an idea past them and sometimes they just, in reframing the question back to you, can help you see everything from a completely new landscape. Yeah, no, that is true. And you do have a skill set. I know that you were a theater set designer and a prop builder, and you've talked about your, uh, you I'll say it in quotes, your modeling career, which always sounds sexier than it is. <laughs> <laughs> You're working with a lot of people, collecting a lot of things, putting things together, making futuristic things, making nostalgic things. What keeps you from collecting every found item you in the world? I used to pick up items off the street and go, oh, I could make this funny. Oh, if I just had the other part of this, this could make a piece of art. It takes a lot to throw something out if you if you get in your mind that something can be something else. Yeah, it's a really hard one because I definitely have a pathology for making. I have a pathology for collecting. I don't necessarily have a commensurate pathology for disseminating. Right. My costume collection itself, which includes now over 20 spacesuits, 25 suits of armor, in addition to superhero costumes galore, I have over 90 costumes on about a dozen Z-Racks in a storage space here in the mission. And those are all cross-referenced with every item that is part of every single costume on a master Google doc that I can go search to figure out where my heavy-duty cartoon Hellboy high-lift boots are, for instance. <laughs> uh, and I'm working on the same thing with the actual prop and pieces collection. I don't want this to be a boat anchor for my family when I die. I, I want this to be a boon for culture. I want people to be able to come visit this stuff. Uh, so I'm always working on schemes for archiving and display that will allow more people to see the stuff. Well, that makes you legit. Now, then you're not just a weirdo. Once you archive it. Behind every museum is an obsessive collector. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We kind of, we didn't grow up the same, but I collected magic tricks. I taught myself to juggle. I was never really a cosplay person, but I did often see the importance of a hat or a cape or a cane, like uh, apparatus always with some kind of scene making notion. Well, what if I have to play a guy that collects the rent? I'll need a phony mustache. It seemed normal to me. And I will say that my parents were permissive and encouraging. They didn't buy the stuff for me, but it did teach me that you needed money to send away to the Chicago Magic Inc. and catalog yeah. 
and get the zipper banana. I love the zipper banana. The zipper banana was one of the greatest disappointments of my life. They had a, a hand drawing of a guy holding a banana that zipped down on the sides and it said, perfect gag, running gag for MCs. Now at 12, I'm not gonna be MCing anything, but for some reason it captured my imagination. And when it came, it was like two pieces of yellow cloth with zipper, with a black magic marker with a line and a dot as if it was an aged <laughs> banana. And it was just brutally disappointing. But the funny thing was they had printed large on the catalog, we sell secrets, no refunds. And I was like, oh, one day I will get this place back. You know, <laughs> but I then much later in my life at a magic convention where everybody else had been ripped off, did a routine with the zipper banana about how lame it was. And it was glorious because I started showing the drawings of other things in the catalogs. This was in the Lewis Tannen catalog out of New York. Yeah. And one of them was a Merlin guy that reached into a brown sack and threw a ball of fire out it was just a sketch but i fantasized walking into the lunchroom commanding yeah. everybody's attention with a ball of fire and it was a cotton ball with a self-striking match inside that had been soaked in kerosene it was ridiculous but i learned from every purchase yep every iteration of designing something or whatever making a silly prop always informed the next silly prop well, buying all those magic tricks and gags as I did too in the Tannen catalog. And I went to Tannen when I was like 12 years old with my dad, went every time we were in New York. But buying that stuff, it's very much like the first two wishes from a genie. You learn how many different ways there are to interpret that thing <laughs> that you thought you really wanted. And here it comes. And it's two pieces of cloth and a total lack of care and a magic marker. And you're like, okay, Fool me once. <laughs> now, I will tell you, we have some secret intel. My son, Tucker, who's an editor on this program and recording us now, he was at Gary Staub's shop, who's a mutual friend of ours. Gary is the yeah. dinosaur whisperer. We've had him on this podcast. And he builds amazing full-scale dinosaurs for science and history museums. Tucker was visiting his shop, and Gary shared with him a text exchange between you and him that included... Uh, the fact that you had dropped a Lord of the Rings sword on your head and <laughs> yeah. and then sent Gary a picture of a piece of flesh hanging off the sword or something. Yeah. I hope that's not revealing too much about your permanent record. No, no, no. I had this sword that I'd been working on. Uh, when you when you build the guard and the pommel uh, and, the, and the handle for a sword, it's called the sword's furniture. And I, I love that term. So I... I had bought this rough forged blade from a company called Albion Blades. And I had done all the grinding to finish it. And I had done some surface treatment to bring it to my satisfaction. And then I had it up in a stand on my workbench because I was working on sharpening it. And I leaned over to get something and I pulled a cord <laughs> and the sword fell over and oh. hit me in my forehead. And it wasn't sharpened. But it was, it did hit me with enough force to leave a little mark. And when I went came in the next morning, that mark, <laughs> that percussive mark that it made, left this little tiny strain of flesh. Gary is absolutely the kind of friend I will send injuries to because we all have horror stories. We got to talk about them. Yes, and and who thought that being a maker was going to be life threatening at times? But it often is, I guess. You know, like if you're not cautious. I had an occurrence here just at the beginning of COVID in my shop. The lockdown starts mid-March 2020, and about a week and a half later, I was working on my lathe, and I got my hand caught between two of the rollers in my lathe, and I almost lost the middle finger of my oh. left hand. In fact, it got torn open from stem to stern, and all of the San Francisco hospitals were full of COVID patients. There was no way I was going to go and ask to be stitched up in this crisis moment. So I cleaned it and I butterflied it back together and I dressed it every day and I have no loss of movement in this. But wow. the morning after the injury, which is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in a shop, I had my hand all bandaged up and I was back in the cave and I was about to film and I realized I'm gonna have this giant bandage on my hand and everyone's gonna wanna know what the story is. And I notice it myself that I don't wanna talk about it. And that tells me as a producer, well, there's something really interesting there. So what's going on? And what's going on is that I feel a huge amount of shame over hurting myself. I always do. And 
I thought, you know what, I'll bet that's a universal feeling and that that's worth talking about. And so I did about a 45 minute fever dream piece to camera. And I still get people coming up and talking to me about how much it meant to talk about that shop practice and that specific feeling of shame that you get when you hurt yourself. Yeah. Did that injury happen in slow motion as well? It's a phenomenon called accident time perception. And we almost did it on Mythbusters for several years. It is a very difficult concept to experimentally test because one, inducing stress in people is unethical <laughs> unless you are following certain conditions. Second, it turns out that things that induce stress in people can be gotten used to very quickly because humans are super adaptable. It further turns out there is one thing that humans can never get used to, and that is falling through open air. Wow, interesting. Everybody has the same stress response every single time. I, when I was taught how to bungee jump by one of the inventors of bungee jumping. And in my second jump, I was like, this is way worse than the first. And he goes, yep, every single one is worse than the last. And I've been doing it for 40 years. Whoa, that brings up somebody that you may know about, I don't know. But I remember many years ago having to take some kind of a driver's class. And there was a story that I think it was in Germany where a guy who was on death row, he was he had done some terrible stuff and he was committed to be killed. And the judge said, I'll tell you what, we have seven driving tests that have to be done that are all very dangerous. And if it rather than send you to be executed, you can take these tests. And if you live through each one of them, then he goes, oh yeah, I'll take that. Essentially, the list were all things to test out German automobile, like, crash on the Autobahn going 50. His adrenaline would change because he would survive one crash and come back and goes, what's next? He, I believe, got through all of them. And so he had gotten where he felt like a Superman at five and was like, I don't care. I'll run into the tree or I'll go off that cliff. It's worth looking up because it really is about that notion that we can, uh, you know, our risk to reward can change. We, yeah, we can get used to almost anything. That is such a great story. Honestly, I want to watch that movie. I hope that I can find it now that I've referenced it because it was, weirdly, we were watching those, they filmed them, right? So they, we were yeah. watching those things and they go, oh, this was, this was the same German prisoner that did all of this. Amazing, great story. You're a dad and a maker. So how many kids do you have? I have twin boys, they are 23 years old. Okay, so in all those years of them growing up, What's the most ambitious thing that you made for or with your children as a dad? We did a few projects together. We made a hovercraft when they were like seven or eight years old. I think one of my favorite moments with one of my kids in the making of stuff was my son thing one. How old was he? He was probably 12. And he had to build a trebuchet for science class. And I steadfastly never helped my kids with their science experiment stuff because I would point out to them, everyone's already going to expect that I'm at home secretly <laughs> right. helping. So don't you want to be telling the truth when you tell them I didn't help? And they right. totally agree with that. But in this case, it was a work with your parent on this trebuchet. And one of the things that at that moment was I had never built a trebuchet. I understood how the mechanic of how it threw its load, but I didn't know exactly how it worked. And so I didn't look it up. I was just going to ask before you continue, will you tell us what that word means? A trebuchet is a type of catapult, whereas a normal catapult that people think about uses a spoon effectively on the end of a spring, a trebuchet actually uses centrifugal force to work as an actual sling to throw its load, and it's a much more efficient catapult. So it doesn't use a heavy spring load in order to deliver. It uses centrifugal force and a, a long sling. And they're incredibly efficient. For a few hundred dollars worth of lumber, you could throw a piano several hundred feet. Okay. And you had not made one before. No, I knew what they were. I had never built one. And so in preparation for my son and I building one, I didn't look up any information on it. We were both the same kind of blank slate. And so we built the main body of the trebuchet, which is a long moment arm with a sling at the end, and it pulls this load. And then there's this point in a trebuchet's journey when it has to release the load that it's slinging. And I didn't know how the release worked. So my son and I had the same impression that it should be a little hooked nail. And we tried it, and that failed fantastically. It took the load and smacked it right into the ground at the base of the trebuchet. 
we unhooked that nail by about 45 degrees and we tried it again and it behaved exactly the same way. And then my son and I both understood at the same moment, the light bulb went off in both of our heads and we we're like, oh, it's got to be straight because it's the correct moment arm if it's straight. And sure enough, we fired that thing and it hit the my loading door 40 feet away. Oh, amazing. So cool that you could learn that at the same moment. The endorphin rush of real discovery in your own head is the thing that I got from Mythbusters every day, every week, every month for 14 years. It, it, it like It was such a main line of that specific endorphin rush. I'm still so grateful for it. Yeah, I've got lots of things. I wanna kinda do, not a speed round, but I do wanna talk about a few things. Deadlines you mentioned in the book, and I find that deadlines is something I have to tell people about whenever they say, what's the secret? I'm like, you gotta have deadlines. A dream is a goal with a deadline. It's not one day I'm gonna. Bingo, yeah, you're totally right. And it feels like the list of things that you have in your book that that you, go deeper on, which are deadlines and and drawing and lists. And one of the things to me that seems the most important is the fact that you call yourself a completist, which is a finisher, somebody who completes things. Were you, were you always that way or did you have to learn? Because I was not. I had to learn to be a finisher. Well, there's such a difference between working on stuff for yourself and working on stuff on the clock. On the clock, there is no option there's always a deadline and there's never enough time. And when you work for yourself, you often want to remove the thing that is the biggest pain in your ass, which is the deadline, so that you can spread out and do everything perfectly. And quickly you learn that without a deadline, you will never finish the project. And so deadlines on the clock are not arbitrary, but in in your personal life, they're totally arbitrary and completely necessary. I don't think I would have learned to juggle five if I didn't say I'm going to do it by Christmas, right? Like if I didn't make up a reason to do it. And then, by the way, somebody gave me this piece of advice. Always tell your worst enemy your your plan because they're the one at the party that's going to say, how's your stupid idea coming? Yep. No family member. They go, oh, it doesn't matter, you know. But but the guy that wants to see you fail, that's a great guy to tell him you're making, you know, writing a movie or something. I'll tell you, one of the things that happens to me here in the cave is when I'm having trouble thinking up a solution for something, one of the uh, mechanisms I use to open the floodgates of being of creativity is to ask myself, okay, what would I do if I was on the clock and I had to wrap this by three o'clock because I've had that deadline? Build a complex mechanical rig that works perfectly on the first try in four hours flat. I've done that. It's not like I seek that level of pressure, but at the workbench, when I ask that question, it yields all of these other solutions I wouldn't have thought of. Oh, that's fascinating. And I know that you do on your uh, tested.com website, you do one day builds, which is flexing the muscle of always having a deadline. And the one rule of one day builds is that no one day build takes one day. (laughs) (laughs) They always take more than one day. It is a constant exercise in failure. You, you reference on your website also that you have some weirdly meditative tools. Is that just the, the, when you're working with them that you get into your Zen moment in the studio sanctuary there or. Well, yeah, that transcendence, that meditation, that flow state, flow is a great word and it's a great name for what happens. Everything I do in this shop, everything I do about organization, everything I do about filming in here is all about lowering my threshold to entry to the flow state to as close to zero as possible. So I film everything on my iPhone because that's the fastest and easiest way for me to film and not have to be thinking about filming to just be concentrating on the bench. I have a certain type of Allen wrench that I like, and I like it so much. I have four different sets at four different places and my shop is only 450 square feet. But if I have to walk 10 feet every time I need this thing, and I'm always grabbing the wrong Allen wrench on the first try, it's gonna slow me down. And so, I am lucky in that I'm able to sculpt this shop to be an engine for obtaining that flow state, whether it's tapping holes or drilling a thousand holes or, you know, using my lathe to make a a long taper. 
it's all about trying to get to that place in which I get to experience the illusion of having control. That's, that's what the workbench is. It is a place where I get to enjoy the pleasant fiction that I have control over the universe. I love that. And, you know, it's funny. When you mentioned about the organization of the shop and where to put the Allen wrench, it reminds me of a guest we had. Bob Bloomer is a fantastic, creative, surrealistic chef. And he talks about the importance of his tools being accessible and not obstructive and not in drawers and not in places where he has to slow down or impede anything that he's working on because as you said the flow state then changes and and often i have to tell people if you have a non-creative spouse or people who don't understand what you're doing they'll often say to you hey adam you're going to be at home anyway why don't you wait for the cable guy you're not doing anything right and they don't understand the doing nothing part is something you push through to get to the flow state and that if you're in the flow state and the cable guy shows up it destroys the flow in a severe way there's a wonderful writer who I follow and get a digest from every week named Anne Helen Peterson. And she writes about how hard it is to protect your schedule when you are in control of it, specifically because it's hard to tell people, no, I can't go do that because I'm doing nothing that morning. <laughs> right. And you're absolutely right. The doing nothing is such an important part of waiting for that, like, oh, here's what I'm going to do. And it's also really hard when someone says, what are you doing tomorrow? You're like, I'm in the shop waiting for that moment to happen. <laughs> right. I find that if you have words, like I'm in an incubation stage, which is just a vague way of saying I'm doing nothing. If you call it something, they go, oh, I wouldn't want to interrupt the incubation stage. Yes, yes, it's totally true. It's said in the book that you, if you could, you would be a screenwriter. Have you ever dabbled in writing a movie? Look, I love, I'm a storyteller. That's ultimately everything that I do redounds to that, redounds to what I think of as an evolutionary love of narrative. I think that that is a, a, such an important human trait. You know, I also say in the book that my friends who are actual screenwriters have this way of looking at plot and narrative in a, in, in a fictional sense that I just I don't have. You give me a real narrative and I know where the high points are. I know what the arc I'm looking for is when I see it. I know how to take that story and tell it. But as w when I have no restrictions within a fictional narrative, I I'm a much better script doctor than I am a script writer because I do love narrative. I love setups and payoffs and I love watching great characters use parts of their brains they didn't know were useful to to solve a problem that is one of my all-time favorite narratives and i also love the idea of being surprised by your characters tarantino talks about that all the time when he was writing jackie brown he was like i was really surprised when jackie told everything to ordell i think that there's something real there i've met writers who poo-poo that idea but the frame from which your creative output is something other than you and can teach you we all interrogate our aesthetic after the creation act, right? It's not like I think, well, I'm a steampunk guy, so I'm going to make the steampunk thing. I think, well, I can't stop thinking about this thing, so I'm going to make it. Why is it this way? I mean, I'll, actually, I have an example for that. I've been obsessed with watching The Crown. So I've been making slowly the entire crown jewels of the royal British royal family. And I'm holding uh, my model of the scepter here in the camera. And just before I built this scepter, I made that sword, which binged me in the head. And so but in two weeks, I made one week, I made a sword. And the second week, I made the scepter. And I'm sitting there thinking, why did I make these two objects? What is it about them that fascinates me? They're both demonstrations of power. They're both narratives of power. A sword says I can protect myself. A sword says I can hurt you. A sword says, listen to me. It says, pay attention. A scepter says the same thing from a different vantage point. The jewels that are assembled are symbols of the power that was able to commission the dredging of those jewels out of the earth, right? It is also an execution of power. And so to me, I look at those two objects and I think, wow, somewhere in my aesthetic, I see the sword and the scepter as being the same object at two different scales. And that really thrills me. That's, that's me learning about how I approach the world just by watching what I can't stop building about it. Yeah, and it's funny. In your book, you talk about uh, rebuilding Kong's survival kit and in and to detail to every things that even didn't exist, you had, you had to 
fabricate. And all of that is a way of taking power and control and being sure that you could have everything you needed in a situation. But you really, really do those deep dives on movie props and all that. They can read all about it in your book, Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. Also, I would encourage them to go to the tested.com website and it is a robust site of all kinds of amazing things uh you meet with other folks you do experiments you tell stories um and also you've got a youtube channel called tested as well hundreds and hundreds of hours of me building stuff up there the more i looked into it the more intrigued i got by your background and your interest and your outlook and i guess i would say that if you feel like making a movie you have all the skills right you know you can communicate to prop builders and costume people and what a director does in storytelling is often communicates to departments and you yeah. know, delegates things and gives it its aesthetic so i i i would say don't feel imposter syndrome if you want to write a movie and direct it yourself i think you'll have many many a fan that will that, that go on that journey with you Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I have a couple of, I actually have a couple of funny plots that are bouncing around in my head and I'm not exactly sure how to execute them or if I will, but uh, I really appreciate the encouragement. Well, it's fantastic. And the tested.com for everybody, one day builds, show and tell, tools, tech, VR, anything that you want. Also, there's probably resources there to other places that makers can find. Yeah, if you like collecting shop tools, my my YouTube channel can be an expensive proposition because I'm constantly covering new tools and obtaining them and including the links to go buy them. And I have friends that are like, dude, you have to stop. It's too expensive. <laughs> I, I keep buying tools. Well, every a great story has to come to an end. And I, I will continue to explore your world through your website and your book. I, I can't recommend that book enough just, just to, as life tips for people who live in a world of creation. So thank you so much, Adam, for sharing insights and inspirations today. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page Stepping on a ghostlit stage A circus of uncertainty